Well, hello everyone. It's great to have Sport Unlocked in collaboration with leaders and to be back here for a second year to chew the fat over several sports news stories. Unlike last year, we don't seem to have a live takeover developing as we're sitting up on stage. Newcastle United unfolding when we were here last year. Uh, it's gone a bit quiet there, hasn't it, since then? Uh, so alongside me, Rob Harris from Sky News, Tarek Panja from the New York Times, Martin Ziegler from the Times. What a year it's been. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think Tarek, you weren't here like, last year, were you? Um, I wasn't. I got. Uh, we had Nick Howard uh, as our guest, and uh, I, I, I sort of put put him through the ringer a bit unfairly. So uh, he's going to be coming on later, and so I'm going to make a, a humble public apology to, to having him. The scene for apologies, Tarek. Any apologies you want to make while well, you've got the audience? <laughs> Well, I think there's way too many people I need to apologise to at the moment, so a broad apology to everyone who's been offended in the last few weeks. A catch-all. Well, catch-all apology. Good to be back alongside you as well. So yeah, good. quieter weeks. Good to have you. Good well, to have you back, Rob. And where have you been? You've been to Turkey recently. You are at the European Club Association meeting. How was that? Yeah, the uh, European Club Association meeting in, in Istanbul, um, bringing the great and the good of the club game. I must say, from a... Uh, a newsline perspective, bit dull if I'm honest, but behind the scenes, the usual shenanigans, um, clubs um, looking at what's happening in this post-Super League environment, and um, it was all about divvying up the money. There's a record amount of money now available from 2024, and right now we're at this point where there is that that wrestling over who gets what. Is it the big clubs who are going to get most of this uh, 2 billion euros? Or, having seen Super League collapse, can they bring their kind of strength in numbers to bear and get some of that? Martin, what do you think? How do you think that's going to go? Uh, I think there's going to be, uh, probably be a situation where nobody is happy. Because that's how it normally works out. And um So rare to get everyone in agreement. And you spent last week at the Premier League meeting... Yeah, uh, yeah, I is, was... To give uh, a flavour, that's just hanging around the hotel, hoping people stop and talk. That's what basically spending, spending a day in the lobby of a, of a, a five-star hotel in London, um, being ignored by football executives <laughs> as they leave the meeting. But uh, it, it is worth, it's worth going, because you do some pick up some stuff. And, uh, yeah, I think some, again, stuff around money and how uh, this, this deal to provide extra cash to the EFL, that's still being debated, um, and the issues around whether there's actually going to be a statutory independent regulator. And then a couple of other things on the side about this sort of this, this struggle to get this deal for NFTs, this non-fungible fungible tokens across the world. Explain them to us. Oh, Martin. we can Go get into it. We'll to get into it later. Well, I actually spent last week at the far more celebratory part of sport, watching Roger Federer in his final matching his entire career, so... Well, in your new career, Rob, you see, you get all these great gigs, you see. <laughs> <laughs> Some things can be uplifting. Although, the big event we've got coming up, which we're going to focus on first, the Qatar World Cup and all the many issues surrounding that and uh, a journey we've all been on since being in Zurich 12 years ago in the snow of that FIFA vote that we've never talked about since, <laughs> completely clean. And we saw last week with the, FIFA, with the FA announcement on their plans, how they mount activism around the tournament. And just today, as we're preparing to go on stage, an announcement from Hummel, the kit maker of Denmark, about how they're going to navigate the thorny area of being a team sponsor and also being wary of Qatar as well. Yeah, so I mean, Denmark, they've been one of the, the teams that have been most sort of active in, in human rights messages. And Hummel Sport have just put out a statement saying that they get, they've produced a, 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 sh a World Cup shirt for Denmark without their visible logo and their visible chevrons designs. Um, and they say this is because they don't want to be seen to endorsing a, a World Cup which has cost thousands of people their lives. Now, I mean, Qatar disputes the fact that it's thousands. They say it's only, I think, three deaths, they say, are related to World Cup projects. But um, investigations have shown that they're quite a few, you know, 2,800, I think Nick Harris reported at the weekend in the Mail on Sunday, 2,800 unexplained deaths of workers. And this sort of tactic by Hummel Sport, I mean, it, I mean, you can you could claim it's a it's a strong marketing tool, 
as well as a sort of human rights message. But uh, it's an interesting one for brands and sponsors going into it. It is, but I think the fact that we're, I don't know, 12 years into this, 60 days from the World Cup, and we still don't know how many people have died, is, is, is just feels wrong, this, this issue. Because if, you know, the, there's a Guardian number uh, from Pete Pattinson at 6,500. The Qatari number is, is three, and that's, that's in relation to people who've died building World Cup stadiums, that's all they're counting. But no, this really is a country that has been reconfigured and rebuilt in almost its entirety for this football tournament. And all these people have gone there to work and build it. So there is this. And the, num- the, o- the other reason why we, we've got this conjecture is there aren't autopsies. Um, so these are people dying typically age 30, between 30 and, and, and 40, we, you know, typically in this room, chances are between 30 and 40, you're not going to die. Th- those numbers are, <laughs> are enormous. So I, I think we should get some clarity as to, as to what we're talking about here. And it feels, feels a bit wrong. It feels a bit unfair on the people who've built this that we can't tell that story in, in a way that's correct. Um, and on, on, in terms of what Hummel are doing... I think there is a pattern, particularly in North Europe, Northern European countries, Holland and Belgium, for example. They've had sponsors who, who aren't. I, ING Group, the banking group, sponsored the Netherlands. They're not activating during the World Cup. They're not sending any, any, um, you know, any clients to, to the tournament. Uh, GLS, a delivery company, sponsors Belgium, also not doing the same. But on the other hand, you get people who are making a great deal amount of money, you know, not least David Beckham north of 100 million to sponsor the country so you know horses for courses Rob. and he can't even do much in terms of how he carries out that role because he keeps himself away from any potential questions around qatari matters so quite a challenging area for sponsors to deal with and who better to bring up on stage our first guest amar singh who's worked with so many sponsors uh particularly budweiser welcome up on uh, stage great to see you and uh, hand you that <coughs> So just explain, who, who, who do you work for now? Who have you worked for? Give you a brief CV. Oh, you don't want the full CV. Then we'll be here all afternoon. Um, but no, I work for MKTG. We're part of Dentsu. We're a marketing agency that delivers uh, partnerships for a range of global brands and rights holders. Um, and with regards to what we're doing at the moment, you know, our, um, our position on the World Cup is that you know, the normal playbook doesn't apply got a lot of brands you've got a lot of partners out there and a lot of brands who aren't partners but want to join this celebration of football that's happening at this unusual time of the year um, who need to be prepared because you know there's so many variables at play there's so many sands that are shifting around um, and people need to be ready so you know we're helping a lot of our brands a lot of our clients get ready for the World Cup because um, it could be a powder keg of, of very socially charged issues you know which you guys just alluded to and how do you navigate that with them? They've paid all this money to be, say, FIFA sponsors, team sponsors. They want to get some return on that. But at the same time, the concern is some of their social posts will end up with a backlash from the public mm-hmm. as well. You know, some people talking about the deaths. How, how do they navigate that during the tournament? Yeah, it's about being prepared, really. And it's about making sure that you're not just prepared to say the right things, but you're prepared to do the right things. And, you know, that's why we're seeing actions like what Hummels are doing at the moment, uh, Hummel, sorry, um, uh, are doing at the moment. Um, and you know what we've seen with the FA and this One Love campaign, there's, there's, there's a balance being struck at the moment with organisations who are engaging with the World Cup in order to make a statement and almost placate a lot of the public anger that is out there and a lot of the genuine concerns around issues such as human rights and LGBTQ plus rights. Um, but at the same time, you know, the World Cup is the World Cup. It's an incredibly powerful thing. And we've seen many times in tournaments in the past, when the football starts, sometimes these issues and talking points melt away, right? And I think a lot of people at FIFA will be hoping that happens. Um, but there's a lot of evidence to show that the world has changed over the last four years. We've done a lot of uh, talking to fans, surveying fans. You know, the pandemic uh, re- reinvigorated conversations around things such as the environment, um, sustainability and also racial equality leading to a lot of actions being taken by a lot of footballers and, 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 and protagonists that are involved in, in the game means that, you know, and, and, and also the audience themselves being a lot more socially conscious and vocal on Twitter means that there's every chance that we're going to see 
this issue come up. And we saw it at Euro 2020, didn't we? We saw it with um, LGBTQ that came up and a lot of brands were playing catch up at that point um, because it flared up as an issue with Hungary and um, people were, okay, what should we do? How can we enter this conversation? So it's about being prepared. Is it kind of easier though for Qatar's tiny in terms of it's not a brand going to next World Cups in what United States, Mexico and Canada, the biggest marketplace in, in the world. Is it easier to say, you know what, we don't like the smell of Qatar, we're not, we're not going to do it, compared to, say, a huge marketplace? Because Qatar, for all its wealth, is, it's not going to be the biggest market for, for these companies. So is it, is it easier to be seen to do the right thing there? Well, I think Qatar is obviously a, a, a nation in a region of the world that punches above its weight, as we've seen in sport. So, you know, uh, these, uh, these nations are here now. Um, and they're very um, interesting challenges around areas such as human rights is something that's on the sporting calendar and is something that you guys discuss week in, week out because it's, sport is clearly something that they've identified as being a place where they can you know, accelerate their agenda and accelerate their growth and influence on, on sport and, and, and geopolitics, if you like. So I think it doesn't make a difference, in, in my view, um, Tarek, because you know, Qatar is... Qatar is going to be the centre of the universe you know, this, this November and December. Uh, it will be all lies on Qatar. So I think um, anyone that's looking to engage in football, they, yeah, for the official sponsors... No, I, mean, I mean, from a, from a sponsor, like if I'm selling, I don't know, mm. a popular soft drink to 300 million people, yeah. I might think, oh, do I want to upset this marketplace? Or if I'm selling the same popular sports drink to 100,000 Qataris, yeah. uh, it might be a different... Value judge. That's, that's what. Yeah. What wondering. Here. I think with the World Cup, though, it's all about the TV audience, isn't it? So wherever the World Cup is, um, you know, the local, the, the benefits on the ground for sponsors is is minuscule compared to what that TV audience gives you. So again, I think you know it, it, it makes little difference. Yeah, interesting. I mean, obviously, you you work internationally. Is it very much a sort of Western focus, the sort of human rights issues in Qatar, are, are people in Japan, for example, or Korea, are they sort of bothered by it, about it? I think it's, it's, it's global actually. We, yeah. we, um, we ran a, a study called Decoding um, at the start of the year, which was the first post-pandemic study of fans of sport, um, where we spoke to, you know, 6,000 fans all over the globe. and. Um, you know, we found that people are a lot more socially conscious. We found that the last four years, you know, the pandemic has affected the whole globe and changed our habits and changed our views on things. And you know, the fallout on, on, on issues such as what happened with you know, the, the George Floyd and, and all the protests after, after that, and a lot of reinvigorated conversations around the environment has led to a very socially conscious world. And it, it does vary in, in different places. And we've seen, for example, Northern Europe is probably the socially conscious hub of, of, of fandom and that's why you're seeing nations like in the past Norway and the Netherlands and Denmark be a lot more vocal on, on issues such as human rights but we've seen it in, in England in the UK and certainly in the US um, it's a very socially conscious um, audience now and uh, and it, it's it's there are, there are differences, but that does exist in, in Asia too, and, and Africa and places like that too. We focused on the brands and how delicately they might have to navigate Qatar. Mm -hmm. What about the athletes, the players themselves? Mm -hmm. Is there a gain to actually be seen as socially conscious and aware, particularly with so many fans looking on, almost perhaps expecting them to sort of show a, an awareness of the issues? Yeah, we're, we're seeing a growing generation now, aren't we? This emerging generation of, of um, footballers and, and, and athletes who utilize their platform and see that as an opportunity to, to, to stand for, for issues that go beyond what they do on the pitch. And I think that's, you know, that's been a really powerful thing over the last few years, and conse consequently, their fans now demand that of them as well. You know, so if you look at other sports, if you look at um, Formula One, for example, Lewis Hamilton, he's not been shy to say, this is what I stand for, I'm gonna use my platform to speak up about things, and you know, he can't control the fact that uh, F1 have a Grand Prix you know, in certain certain nations, um, but he will make his statements, and you know, he'll 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 speak up for what he believes in, and I th I fully expect that we will see some of that um, at the World Cup. I would not be surprised, and I think racism is another issue where a lot of footballers have have made it very clear through taking a knee and through other work that they're doing 
that they're going to stand stand up for it and make a make a statement. And if it does flare up, which I wouldn't bet against, um, I expect that footballers will be will be leading the vocal, um, you know, expressions against it. And we are dealing with a credit crunch, a global <coughs> financial crisis at the moment, again, almost sort of reviving the days of uh, 2008 and the cost of living crisis all around. Mm -hmm. How do you think that's going to impact the sponsors going into this tournament, knowing that so many of their potential consumers are struggling at the moment around the world? Yeah, I think for brands, and this is something we talk to brands about, unrelated to sport and the World Cup as well, is um, you have to be conscious of what's happening economically at the moment. Um, you know, you're in a commerce-style relationship, you know, with, with, with consumers. You need to understand how the sands are shifting and how, um, you know, how things will be perceived. So, you know, we've seen that purpose-driven marketing um, and campaigns have grown exponentially over the last few years, and I think that will be huge over the next, you know, six months to a year, uh, particularly around, you know, domestically you're looking at things such as food banks and, you know, areas like that and, and, and how brands can give back to... Um, to help people because you know we are going to see unfortunately a lot of people struggle in society because of these issues um, if you if you look at uh, this World Cup I think this is a World Cup where unfortunately a lot of people have been priced out of going out there so and the fact that it's winter you know I think it shifts you know there are opportunities and there are setbacks it's going to be a lot, lot more about the home viewing occasion what are the opportunities around that um, you know it's going to be more of a solo viewing occasion. You know, if you think about World Cups, usually it's gathering with your mates outside, you know, going to pubs with big outdoor screens, watching on a big screen. Ultimately, there'll be less of that because it's in November and December, speaking from a UK perspective. So what is that? Um, how can you add to that, <coughs> that viewing experience at home? Because, you know, 99.9% .9 of people who are experiencing this World Cup are going to be experiencing it um, at home. Well, it's been great to have you on stage. It's unpredictable, all this. Just checking with the others. No more questions? No, we're <laughs> no, we're no, talking about beer good. and World Cup another time. No <laughs> doubt. Oh, I was the yeah, former Bud Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask you if you actually enjoy drinking it. We'll, we'll, we'll have a beer. We'll, have a beer. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, yeah. Who knows that? We Bud. I'm up. Thanks for joining thanks us thank up you. on stage. Thank you. Well, while we're talking about Qatar. <laughs> thanks a lot. Um, Nick, we'll be nicer to you this time. Um, Nick Coward, um, there's no ambush here this time. Nick Cowd, welcome up on stage. Formerly <laughs> Premier League, involved in Kabaddi, Golf England, so many things. Uh, Nick, Nick, well, I, I asked Nick earlier about the, the Nick's with Kabaddi now in India, booming product, about what the rules on oiling players are. I'm not going to. Please don't. I'm not going to ask you now. Um, but I did. We're talking about Qatar and the World Cup, and we're, like I said, we're 50, 60 days there. And as Rob said, this, this, this journey we've been on, journalistically as well, I was thinking about one of these stories, which was moving the tournament from the summer to winter, and the, the tension it created with the European leagues and the clubs, you know, November and December, prime viewing time. You were at the Premier League, I believe, during this period. How, how big a deal is something like that, this calendar change? Thanks, Tarek, and thank you very much for the even shorter notice this year than Martin gave me uh, last year <laughs> to, um, to speak. Um, no, thank you very much. I, I did have about two minutes. <laughs> you had so two minutes the record has been set. Start with, start with, it's an extraordinary moment in, in European club football, European football, and uh, you know, as a, I suppose as a fan now, um, looking in lots of other sporting involvements, that's the first thing to reflect on. It is a momentous moment, the, the, the change in the, the rhythm that we've all become used to in our, you know, our fandom. And all that that means, whether that be the fan, you know, me as a, me as a fan, all the way through to the club, the leagues, everything, the entire system. So let's go back and, you know, with the, with the five minutes I've had to recall how it was um, at that time, and uh, y you, were, you were going through more of the, the process by which the World Cup was, was um, was allocated, you know, the World Cups were, were um, granted the right to host, the honour to host. Um, I suppose our first, or the first reaction of people involved in football was when it started to emerge that actually this might mean what you're describing, a change in the calendar was 
Well, everything from astonishment, frustration, through to, I suppose, downright anger amongst some. I'm not, I'm not talking about necessarily English football, I'm talking about across the whole of Europe. Javier Tebas isn't here today. Javier, Javier I, I can exclusively, I don't <laughs> think you'd be surprised uh, to anyone to know that the, the, um, the table thumping was mostly led by Javier Tebas, a great, a, a great guy who doesn't shy away from, <laughs> from expressing views on big issues. Um, and that's a really interesting point. I suppose that's a, that's a compare and contrast to what I recall as being the Premier League viewpoint, which, and you'll know this, and we, we, you've heard this many times, that view of what the Premier League is uh, and the role of the organisation with the clubs as good football citizens. You know, you could get angry, was a view. You could start to say, well, this is a reason to try to, this is unfair, go back, reallocate, all that stuff. I don't think that's true, and I'm looking at Nick and I've got Alberto here as well, who were also involved um, at the time. Our view was very much, okay, this Alberto from the European Leagues and... Uh, and Nick Noble, who was, who was a colleague at the Premier League at the time. And so we, we were living through... For those who can't see in the room. Fair enough. We were, we were living through this. But it's our starting point was, this is going to happen. We've got to make this work in the least, um, least interrupted, least disruptive, least bad way for... <coughs> our clubs and all you know, the fans, players, everyone involved um, in, our, in our part of the world. And the process by which we then had to go through that, I think ultimately, I think it was one of the first occasions on pretty much there was a gathering of people, including leagues. So I remember Richard Scudamore himself, you know, he was brought onto a group with other, other league heads, others from European professional football, um, together with colleagues across all the regions of the world, a unique process, really, to work through. What are the options? And ultimately come down to what's the least disruptive? Because again, you have to look at it and reflect on the fact that Europe, Europe is, works to one calendar, other systems work to other calendars. And so that was our general approach, and I remember it being a, an exhaustive, won't surprise you to know, Premier League world, data-driven, a lot of analysis, a lot of view, a lot of consultation, engagement with clubs to try to work out what our view was, a lot of collaboration with the other the other leagues. Um, I remember Christian Zeifert was the was the um, the leader at the Bundesliga at the time. Uh, you mentioned Javier. Uh, we had Lars Christa, who was in heavily involved in the European leagues, and um, we came to a our view, a European view, and ultimately a global view. And I think what is actually remarkable now, maybe just to conclude, is this momentous change. It seemed you know huge change for a lot of people, but here we are. It's happening. It's going ahead. The system has worked to accommodate this this vast change, and we're all now looking forward. I'm sure to there it is. There's the World Cup. Yeah. We'll all have to accept that. You know, maybe we won't be um, looking at for Shrewsbury Town results when we thought we might too. No, but <laughs> just to put a final point on it, the leagues I think wanted January and February. Sepp Blatter wanted November and December, and essentially has, has, has got his way there. Uh, yeah, Tara, let's not get into what is true negotiation and what you really think is the right outcome and what you think is the most achievable and all those kinds of things. Of course, there were negotiating positions yeah. taken. Um, I think it's reasonable to say that the outcome was one which, which the Premier League at the time thought, you know, okay, we get that, that works, that will work for us, we will make that work. I, I, think I was going to say, it's uh, slightly ironic then, you know, after this... Um, Long battle, and you, uh, we've uh, we've got it down to 28 days, and then a few, you know, a couple of months before the World Cup, FIFA just get another day, add another day in, just like that. But then bring it back, and that is, um, you know, away from the actual question. That was all about, you know, government's decision-making process, yeah. and that's if you reflect on it, you know, I've been involved in a lot of sports and a lot of, a, a lot of processes. That's the bit which I think ultimately doesn't stand up. How how could that be? How can that happen? How can you go into a process where no where nobody knows what, that this is going to be one of the potential outcomes? And that uh, I guess again, it's a reflection on perhaps that decision making process, but that doesn't get talked about so much now. And and, and, so, and ultimately, the reason why we got the date switch was because the clubs had to agree, and they struck the deal with FIFA at the time to increase the the finances that actually clubs would get redistributed and. From the FIFA Prize winning shortly, we actually should have the European Club Association. Charlie uh, Marshall is back in the room. We're going to bring up very shortly so he can prepare for that. But finally, while we've got you on, of course, one of the other big matters in English football is the matter of a regulator. Will the Liz Truss government drop the regulator plan or not? Was she the regulator? Is it a job you would want? <laughs> 
Well, I suppose it's a job in many ways I've, I've had and done, uh, not just in football, but in racing and, and others. And I suppose that's, that's at the heart of the debate. Um, I think we touched on it last year. There's, there's so much in, in the Tracy Crouch report which is, which is good and obvious and makes sense. And you know, whatever, whatever process is carried out by whom, sensible stuff to be done. The, the issues which are always going to cause issues, uh, uh, um, headaches for a lot of people, particularly those people who are going to have to try to write what legislation might look like, is stuff like intervention in distribution, markets, commercial rights, and so on. So I, I still think that there will be a sensible outcome, because all these things are good things. Everyone wants good, reg everyone wants good regulation. Again, back to the Premier League, back to English football. Um, having a conversation today about one of the great strengths of English, English football is actually the, 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 the true sense that it is in many ways, and this might surprise others, but you'll know from your wanderings around the world, very well regulated. You know, people generally respect the decisions and the people who are engaged in the process. What we were talking about this time last year, you know, good people, good process, coming up, often in difficult circumstances, making you know, clear and reasoned decisions. And I think that's a, that's a hallmark of the, of the system. My own view is it doesn't much matter how you badge up those decision makers, as long as you've got good people, and that will generally involve a degree of independence, it doesn't matter whether you call them a statutory or an FA or a Premier League or in other sports, the Federation, the League or, or, or some, some other body. Everyone has their own system, but I think the real key is have a system, good people in it, a clear system. Everyone has confidence, at least in the process, they can see and then have the maximum chance of faith in the outcome, wherever that decision is made. And it tends to, I think that's ultimately where this will come to. And as I say, however it's badged up, that's what the outcome will be, and it's largely the same as the outcome or the processes that we have now. How to make this exciting for a fly in the world documentary, which could be coming for the Premier League, we'll discuss uh, in a moment. But Nick, <laughs> thank you for joining us thank again on stage no, at Air Leaders. Great pleasure, thank Thanks you. Thanks, Thanks Nick. <coughs> so we touched it there, it was your story, uh, Martin. Are we going to get a Drive to, to Survive style Premier League series? Yeah, or oh, Dive to Survive, that was my working <laughs> title. Well, you earn the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so this the 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 clubs had a, had a meeting last week, um, and this was Netflix had proposed a, a, a series made by Box to Box, the makers of Drive to Survive. Um, it, it didn't sort of come up with a great deal of detail, but they certainly the clubs were interested, um, and they they asked the executive to go away and come back with a like a more details, details, the formal proposal, what it would look like, how much behind the scenes access they would need to give, what it would mean in terms of highlights, how it would work internationally, um, because I think that would be the sort of the main benefit for the Premier League is having a sort of completely global programme which can drive interest overseas markets particularly. Although, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, it's a, you do get a big check, but it's not that, is it? It's this, um, yeah. this engagement and creating this new, because it's been a phenomenon for Formula One, the, 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 through that programme, I can't, I suppose myself in some way, I, I fell out um, of any kind of interest in Formula One, watched um, a bit of that documentary, and then you get the personalities, and you're suddenly you need to go to the paddock. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not invited to the paddock club, unfortunately. Whining and dining around the road. But the um, no. What, what what was interesting about that show was it created these kind of new characters, and and storylines in somewhere like I don't know the, the guy in eleventh and fifteenth, and you're suddenly rooting for. Uh, I'd never heard of this guy Pierre Gasly before, but I have now. How, how's this do? And it, cre it created this enormous new um, new fan base that is looking for something else as well, rather than just who's going to be who on the field when it comes to football or who's going to do what in the um, place in the Formula One race. So that's set a template. I can see why the Premier League would be interested in that. I mean, does it happen a bit like we've seen with some of the reality TV contests? That one format's great, then others start to replicate it. Then you get saturation for a period. We didn't seem to have many sports documentaries. Now there's a whole raft of them, and they all end up trying to emulate the existing product rather than innovating. Really. And how would it look for a Premier League? Like it's very different Premier League to, to Formula One, as, as Rob said. You've got all those shows as well on Amazon with each mm. of these teams, the Arsenal one at the moment. Have you got any idea what it would look like? What Not particularly. Look? I mean, just to go back to the Drive to Survive thing. So Silverstone um, sold, opened their tickets for the British Grand Prix. 
uh, about ten days ago, and that, but the system collapsed. Wow! Because um, okay. the, the demand, and they they ended up selling more tickets in in, in a day than they had done in uh, than they did in something like thirty two weeks a year ago. It's all the Pierre Gasly fans, and and, and, it, and, it, and and they said, you know, this drive to survive thing has just taken off so much as it suddenly become a huge demand. So. I, I, I don't think in, in the UK it would be a sort of you know we've you know we've watched one of the the uh, Nottingham Forest sort of in, inside story of how they scrape the survival or whatever. But I think the idea perhaps would be a internationally uh, where you do get sort of personality driven stuff behind the scenes together perhaps with with highlights that you you know you might not get elsewhere and. Um, as a sort of, as like a highlights package, perhaps. I, I, that's just my. This, my this is what Nick Noble's missed out on. You could have had a, a film crew within <laughs> the Premier League office of the comms department. And, you know, one thing will come up as we see very often in the Premier League is how you weigh the voices of the twenty. How you spread the exposure of the teams throughout the league. In the UK, there are certain um, caps on the number of times a team can be played. At a minimum, you need to ensure they do get that exposure. A minimum of ten times a season. There will be a focus on actually who gets disproportionate attention, who's squeezed out, and they won't be happy. The team squeezed out of the series. No, okay, it's, you know it's kind of, all, but it's all in the round, I suppose. You can imagine something like clearly transfer deadline day or something. If you get these cameras in there, you can imagine the the the, the, the kind of drama that would create, whether it's uh, Nottingham Forest or, or Man United or whatever. You know the the tension in the in the room. On the, we don't see that, do we, at the moment? No. Oh. Well, someone who knows all about the tension behind the scenes of clubs is Charlie Marshall from the European Club Association. He was starting to rest at the back of the room, but he's now ready to make his way to the front here. Great link. Charles Char <laughs> Char is the managing director of the ECA. Involved in so many of those big talks. Great to have you up here. It's As I believe one pleasure. of our list long-time listeners. Absolutely, absolutely. Like everybody else in this room. So you've come fresh from the... He was the I just want to ask you, did I describe that meeting as too boring when, when he asked me? <laughs> what, you were there, you were, it was your meeting. Well, it wasn't that newsy, was it, the last ECA? Now uh, he's going to. Was it newsy? Was well, it the, big, one, the, the, one the one we just week. came back from? I think you, you were more impressed with the surroundings than the that meeting, weren't you? Very opulent. <laughs> <laughs> now we can say, since we got you here, so who, who was battling, who actually uh, was rowing behind the scenes? I know you want to tell everyone, that's why you've come here. You <laughs> it, it was a very peaceful meeting. Unfortunately. Unfortunately for you, things are quite peaceful these days. And for those who don't know, you've been there behind the scenes as UEFA and the clubs have been navigating all the changes to the Champions League in recent years, the potential 24 locked-in teams, that, that plan was scrapped. Then we had the completely separate Super League plan that was quashed and the ECA emerges with new leadership and Nasser Al-Khalifa and then UEFA and yourselves agree on the Swiss model with the increased group stage from 2024. So quite a, it might seem quite mundane to some sort of but actually very consequential, isn't it? The whole football landscape changes from 24 through a lot of the work you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, so I joined about four years ago, sort of late 2018. And um, I think that was at the start of what has, you know, what became known, and I guess still is known as the sort of post-2024 series of um, projects or, or, you know, series of components that fit together to form the overall relationship between the clubs uh, at a European and inter international level uh, and both UEFA and FIFA. And you know, I know there are plenty of other stakeholders involved and there are plenty of other stakeholders in this room and listening, but from my perspective and from ETA's perspective, um, you know, one of the most important things since 2018, since I joined, was to secure those post-2024 sort of framework agreements such that we could um, reach uh, a level of stability in the system, which clearly wasn't there in 2018 and, and, and clearly got a lot worse um, between 2018 and now. Uh, in, interestingly kind of spurred by COVID and, and I will always argue um, that the fact that no one had a physical meeting for about 14 or 15 months in the world of sports politics 
is a really bad thing because a lot of things need to be sorted out, yeah. not yeah. on the end of a of a video screen. Yeah. So the combination of what COVID was doing, um, you know, to the sort of overall financial picture, plus the fact that no one was speaking properly, and also it meant they didn't encounter us in hotel lobbies. So that was pretty dull. And, you and know, that's just, I mean, that we just couldn't join the waiting room on Zoom, <laughs> so it's less exciting that way. That definitely yeah. made things less exciting. And what about distributing money, particularly to the women's game? We've had an expansion in the women's champions league, but yeah. a lot of the leagues aren't professional. England is one of the few, which means actually it's on the European level where teams will grow, expand and get those competitive games. How are you looking at actually expanding the women's competition, which is only one European competition at the moment? Yeah, I mean, th there was a, a small but significant um, device introduced into the 21-24 men's distribution um, arrangement, which was a, a, an investment in the, into the women's competition. Uh, so 10 million euros goes every year from the men's game into the women's prize pot. But, uh, uh, you know, and that is small but significant. significant because a team winning so the Champions League in the men's one will get, what, 140 yeah, odd million? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I won't claim that that is a sort of major financial investment in terms of quantum, but it's, the significance is its presence, is <laughs> actually the introduction of the thing in the first mm. place and where it might lead to. Um, but money and prize money is, is one thing. You're absolutely right. I think that the whole competition design, um, which at the moment we're in a 21 to 25 cycle for the Women's Champions League, after 25, um, that, that needs to be looked at now and reflected mm. on, you know, how's it going in the, in the Women's Champions League? What are we seeing in terms of competitive but balance? In terms is of that, access, is some of this not of down to you though, Charlie? I mean, isn't this down to the broadcasters and sponsors putting their own money on the table too? Otherwise, you know, it's just moving money from one place to the other. It, this should be, as we saw with the Euros, it's a, it's a growth opportunity, isn't it? Do you anticipate a lot more money organically coming into the women's game from broadcasters and sponsors rather than let's move this pot to there and, and, and that will fund it? What, what are you see? I think it's a, it's a combination, right? We're still in, the, we're still in a world where um, commercially, the more we can sort of seed the women's game, the better, right? So the, just like I think with any investment, the more that you can actually find to sort of put into it with the expectation that that will pay back uh, in years to come, because it's not going to pay back on an annual basis, the better, right? So that, that, that investment that the men's game can make in the women's game from, let's say, prize money is really good because it's not, um, it doesn't put the pressure on having to get all the money for the women's game from annual revenue from broadcasters or, spon broadcasters or sponsors. Having said that, the, the signs are good. The signs are good. I don't think we're seeing a dramatic step change that we would really like to, you know, yeah. the, the women's game has gone up by 500% commercially, but it's all trending in the right direction. It's, but it's, a, it's still a slow burn. We need you know, the, the, the continuing professionalization of the game. We, we need the media to get behind it, and the media does like to get behind it, which is great. We need the stars, right? Mm. We, 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 need the, we, we need the star players because that's what drives any sport. Mm. And it needs the clubs to invest in the staff, which doesn't actually always happen on the women's side. You find the sort of fewer resources are diverted. So they do struggle in terms of actually mm. maximising exposure when they're not actually... That, that's, that's true. That is, that is changing as well. And I won't name any names, but even in my time here, um, there are certain clubs who four years ago were, were still saying we're not going to invest in the women's game. We will not have a women's team. Really? Four years ago. Because it's a cost. Because it's a cost and because the, the case well, it's not, not, not that, 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 not that long ago. Not that long ago, it was Manchester United. Manchester United didn't have a team. When yeah. Alex Ferguson apparently wanted things focused more on the first team yeah, and the men's side. That's right, apparently. The um, final uh, question from me on the, just want to go back to this thing about the finance, the split. Do you mm. think it's possible that the coefficient element of the funding will, will, will be scrapped? So where you get a chunk of the market pool depending on your historical performances in Europe? I think, that, I think it'll, it's too early to say. Yeah. I think all of those pillars, which is the, what you know, we sort of call them, to, in terms of how, when you get down to the money that's left for each competition, within the competition, how does it get split between starting fees, performance fees, 
um, the coefficient and the market pool. I think all, all of that will be looked at, but it's too early to say. Okay. okay, and from me, a last one for you, Charlie, and it's this sort of event where you get ideas, etc. Uh-oh. So Uh-oh, he's had an idea. <laughs> this is a, I couldn't make no. someone guess them of yours, but, but let's we, 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 you, know, you and I were sat next to each other again in Luxembourg at the European Court of Justice, the, 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 the um, UEFA is being sued by um, A20. To, to make clear you weren't both in court together, this uh, was a we were, independent we were, we were, yeah, yeah, A22, which is one of the companies behind the Super League and the Super League company, are suing UEFA um, essentially for its uh, monopolistic practices. Now, if, if UEFA was to lose this case, is there, is there not a, why should UEFA run all the club competitions? Can't it just regulate them? This, we've been talking about this, about splitting the roles, etc. This event organising function, can't someone else organise European football and UEFA act as a, as a regulator? Or is that, you know, that's not sexy enough for the people in Neon, you know, because it is great to run these things. Can it happen? I mean, it, it, it's, it's either a very complicated one or a very easy one to yeah. answer. So I'll take the easy way. <laughs> um, from a club perspective, from an ECA perspective, We've always stood for governance reform, but from within the system, right? So taking into account the current stakeholder landscape, what all the stakeholders do, and how they, how they got there is kind of, you know, one side of the story, but the fact that we are where we are is, is the kind of reality that we need to look at. But, from, you know, for the last 14 years of ECA's history, we've been there to sort of drive more partnership, more engagement, more involvement, more representation for the clubs in all of these European footballing matters, including the competitions. Um, and, and one of the things that's obviously been written about uh, a little bit and talked about a little bit um, is this joint venture that mm. we have with UEFA. Uh, and, and it's been in place for six or so years and it's continually evolving that is focused on the commercial aspects of the competitions. So in that joint venture, I think what we're saying is UEFA and the clubs have an equal role coming together to commercialise the competitions. And, and that, that bit of, it's not the whole story, but that bit of the governance of European competitions, I would argue, is showing signs of, of being reformed, and that's something that we've sort of stood for. And, and, and I would say that the European football system as it currently is, um, we should all be quite proud of that and we, you know, we should all be saying to the regulators, look, here's a good example of uh, remedies from, that come from within the system uh, rather than sort of be at risk from remedies that come from outside the system. The European Cup, a concept that emerged from French journalists, so perhaps who better to run or conceive ideas for European competitions than journalists. <laughs> as, as we just look down the, uh, the line, 20, 20 years' time, Crystal Ball, Champions League, will it still exist? Will it have teams from outside of Europe in it? Will it still be largely midweek? So I'll start with the first. Will it exist still, the Champions League? Or will 20 it be years' time? Yeah. I think there will always be a competition that sort of somehow sits at the top of the pyramid, right? Um, Domestic uh, leagues might say they're the top of the pyramid. I don't <laughs> It's difficult to decide. I don't want to be higher up <laughs> yeah, about yeah, it, yeah. but ultimately it sort of does feed into to, to one thing, doesn't it? I mean, at the moment on a on a continental basis. So whatever it's called, and we might not have a pyramid in twenty years either, right? Yeah. If, uh, I think the, if the Super League had happened, th there still will be a competition to crown. Yeah, I think that's UEFA's word, isn't it? To mm. crown the uh, you know the top club. And so whatever that competition is called, or wherever it sits, I think it will, will, will still exist. Just with European teams, or do you think there'll be more global elements? I think there'll always be one with European teams. We've got you on tape saying that. See what happens when we're back here in 20 years' time. <laughs> My goodness me, I think we're all doing pretty well if we're back here in 20 years' time. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Charlie Marshall, Managing Director of the European Club Association. Great to join you. Thank you. Thinking maybe we should see if there's any any questions on the floor before maybe we get onto boxing, the future of yeah, boxing yeah. at the Olympics. The future of the pound, the future of the pound as and well. And the Rob. pound. Has anyone got any questions <laughs> on the floor to put us on the spot? Time to see some people from the world of football, but they're all resistant for now. Um, boxing, its future is further in doubt at the Olympics, isn't it? There's been elections with the body that previously ran the sport Olympics, but no longer can in the IOC mm. run it. Fill us in. What's been happening? Well. When did they say elections? That, that, that there was supposed to be an election on, on Sunday. Um, 
and the uh, the Russian president Umar Kremlev actually was was re-elected without there being an election because his uh, his Dutch opponent was sort of declared ineligible by, by a vote of the of the, of the members. Um, the, the IEBA, as it's now called, um, is sponsored and basically funded by Gazprom, the, the Russian state-owned energy company. Um, Umar Kremlev was pictured with Vladimir Putin two weeks ago. Um, and they've sort of gone to war with the IOC now, um, because the IOC are, are sort of raising questions about whether they should, they should um, organise the, the, the boxing qualifiers for, for Paris. And I think we're now getting to this stage where there's questions about whether actually in, in the longer term whether boxing is going to be part of the Olympics or whether there will be a completely new IOC-run organisation. Well, it was the IOC that, because of all of this, dates back years, this stuff, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, it was the IOC that organised the competition for Tokyo as well, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I think having a, a Russian guy sponsored by Gazprom <laughs> picture with Putin probably isn't likely to get you back into um, international sport anytime quick at the moment, right? Well, as we close up as well, we think what has changed since last year when we were on the stage here at Leaders. We've had a full-on invasion of Ukraine by the Russians. We've had Russia kicked out by FIFA and UEFA from playing their teams, but we've still got Russian officials involved in FIFA and UEFA. They aren't suspended. We've got decisions to come from the IOC in terms of the Paris 24 games. UEFA have said that Russia won't be part of Euro 2024 qualifying, but what a year it's been geopolitically, how it's collided with sport, and also where we go next in terms of particularly FIFA, where we've seen the close association with Gianni Fantino and Vladimir Putin, which has put them in a difficult place and difficult decisions to come as this war continues. Yeah, I mean, it just shows that this you know, when you get a country like Russia, which is sort of determined to, to get a national pride from a, a sort of dictator, basically, um, by bringing top sporting events. And we just, you know, we see all the IOC and FIFA bowing and scraping before him for the Sochi Olympics and the World Cup. And, and it's just, I think it's just a warning. Don't, uh, sports governing bodies should not ally themselves with, with regimes um, and we, you know we're seeing it again with, with FIFA and, and you know Kowtain, Saudi Arabia. And this is the very week. And any congratulations in oh terms yes. of congratulations, uh, the new prime minister of Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, another mandate for Mr. Bin Salman, His Excellency. So congratulations. <laughs> but but, but, but uh, to, to your to your point though, these small these federations are tiny. That's the other thing it shows. They're not. It's not like they're desperate for Russian money. They're desperate for any money. And it Russian played the game, they, they knew this, the, the sponsorship and the, the hosting tournaments, all, all of this for, look, in, in the Olympics, what, 27 sports? I don't think anyone watches more than four of them at any other time when the Olympics aren't on. So it's, it's the Russians picked all these off one by one and you, you create a, a very influential power base um, in sport. And the thing with those officials that you mentioned there, the reason they're still there is because sports rule books weren't designed for a country invading another one. The only reason uh, Russia is not in the Euro qualifiers or in the World Cup is a force majeure situation, you, which is this, this invasion. But having a guy sat next to you at the Exco, it's <laughs> they can't kick him out, he'll win at Cats. And of course, since we were last here at Leaders as well, Live Golf, which is completely... Uh, ripped sport, ripped golf apart, but also made golf pretty interesting. We've been just talking and so writing we, we've about, written about it <laughs> more <laughs> than any other time, probably. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, not for the right reasons as they would see it, but a really divisive moment that golf has still got to navigate its way through yeah, so in the coming months. It's an interesting one because actually there's been a lot of coverage of live golf, but only of the controversy. There's not actually been much I can coverage. Think of a moment. Well, they haven't got a TV contract, so you can't. That's right, and then I noticed that they're now offering to um, fly reporters out and accommodate them just. It just to cover the event. Aren't where, where will that be? <laughs> I'm not sure because I hadn't received the offer, but I know. Which isn't have. unusual for sports that a lot of sports do that, but obviously this sort of is heightened given the fact there's a struggle actually for it to be. L looking forward to sport. hosting the pod in Jeddah in a, in a couple of months' time, guys. Well, I don't think we'll be there somehow. Though, so. any, any closing thoughts? Any matters of the week? 
Anything you're working on? No, I'll just not mention the, the NFT thing because we have talked about cryptocurrency quite a lot. The voice of scepticism around NFT. And we, we, have, we have been quite sceptical. So I, I think when the, when the sort of news emerged about six months ago that the Premier League was uh, looking to have an NFT partner, so I'm sure everybody knows, but these non-fungible tokens, these digital, digital collectibles um, where you can basically pay a lot of money and then in cryptocurrency and then... Uh, you get your your name registered as the owner of one of these digital cards on some sort of blockchain somewhere, um, and I think you know the clubs thought oh, this is going to be an easy payday. Talked talking about four hundred million pounds over three years, and I think there was even consensus was that the partner had been selected, and then since then basically the market has has collapsed. Got Unlike the pound. I was, was going to say the other the other <laughs> story with the, with this is. The, the pound collapsing, I mean, just looking at Chelsea on the 30th of May when Todd Bowley and um, Clear Lake bought Chelsea, it was three for two and a half billion, two and a half billion wow. pounds, not 4.75 mm. or whatever the number is, Which two, does two, get and half, two and a half billion, too often. but that, that was about 3.15 billion dollars. In dollar terms, that asset has been slashed by 400 million dollars. I mean, I know he likes spending a lot of money in the transfer window, but that, that is a significant war chest that has just been wiped out thanks to, um, I guess, the new Chancellor and his, his, his policy there this week. Yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I guess for these American investors, it, those who've bought, um, I've seen the, 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 certainly the paper value of their investment has dropped considerably, but um, I guess for those who are considering buying now, it's, it's cheaper. It should be bargains. Also for the Premier League as well, um, I'm not going to ask um, people who work there, but um, I, the, the way their TV deals are structured, a lot of the overseas deals are in dollars, so the, there is some mitigation in terms of revenue for, for those clubs, isn't it? If, once you convert whatever's yeah, so in like Malaysia the, yes, and it's Singapore. Correct, like the US TV deals is, is whatever. Plus a lot of Asian deals are in... In, um, in dollars, uh, yeah. yeah. But I however, it's not quite as straightforward as that because al although, you know, $2.7 billion at the time in November is now something like whatever it is, $3.5 billion, it's, uh, there, there are clauses to protect both companies with like, current, you know, hedging with, with currency changes so that they don't... It, it doesn't. Um, they don't end up out of pocket, one or other party. You've done. You've done that with your travel money for next summer. <laughs> <laughs> and we should end with some positive news. Of course, you've written very positive about Premier League players today. How they benefit from the uh, removal of the forty-five percent tax uh, bracket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought just to put it through the, uh, the, the the Times calculator, and they got the so the average Premier League player is on uh, four million a year, um, and that means that they they. Their net income rises by two hundred and forty-two thousand pounds, which uh, is pretty. It's pretty good. I mean, I know a lot of them uh, sort of maybe have non-dom status and for their image rights, but in terms of their basic salary, that's uh, that's pretty pretty significant. They budget. They benefit from. Well, been great to do this again at Leaders. Great to be alongside uh, Tarek and Martin here with the audience. With so much going on in the world of sports news. Thank you, everyone for listening and as always subscribing through the year, navigating the world of sports news with us as ever. You can find us at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. For now, thank you for listening and particularly those here at Twickenham. Thanks guys. Thank